I was raised to believe that the Bible defines good and evil for us within its pages. But when we stop and examine this idea using the Bible, we discover something else. In the Garden of Eden, there were two trees. A tree that would bring life to all who ate of its fruit, and a tree that brought death. And it was the second tree, the tree that resulted in death, that contained the knowledge of good and evil. Have we been deceived by the serpent who is trying to get us to eat of the second tree? Is the Bible really trying to define good and evil for us? Let's take a step back. Let's run an experiment. Instead of seeking to define good and evil, let's instead ask the question of the trees. Let's attempt to define life and death, but to do so, we must first seek it out. So join us as we Deresh Chai, as we seek life. Hey everybody, welcome to the Deresh Chai Experiment, the show where we compile the symbols that we read, and then we use them to learn more about our Messiah. Well, this week we're still reading the story of the building of the tabernacle. And the people, they're now fully engaged in their task to make and to assemble all of the pieces needed for creating this dwelling place for God. The curtains have been woven at this point in the narrative, and all of the materials have been donated, but nothing else has been accomplished. The community has come together to create this masterpiece of worship. They've created a semblance of the Garden of Eden, a representation of the creation in honor of the Creator, a model of communion through prayer, a picture of the path of salvation. And perhaps the most foundational to our faith, a picture of our Messiah. John 1.14 says, And the Word became flesh and pitched his tent among us, and we saw his honor, honor of an only brought forth of a Father, complete with favor and truth. The tabernacle is the tent of God as given for a type and symbol of the Son of God. Hebrews 8.4-5 for indeed, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the Torah, who serve as a copy and a shadow of the heavenly, as Moses was warned when he was about to make the tent. For he said, See that you make it all according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. The tent reveals what was in the heavenlies. It acts as a physical shadow of a spiritual reality. It reveals so much about our relationship to God, and it is a topic that is nearly inexhaustible when we examine it through these lenses. All of this to say that the pattern of the tabernacle gives us lenses through which to see many of the things of God. But perhaps the most foundational is the one that's highlighted in the book of Hebrews. Because the Messiah is prefigured in the tabernacle. His role and ministry to us is woven into the tent. John 1.14 is not just about Sukkot with Yeshua coming and tabernacling among us. It is about the tent of God being pitched in our midst. The tabernacle, as represented in the Word, became flesh and dwelt among us. And the fleshly example of the tabernacle was exemplified in the life of Messiah, giving life and breath to all of these articles of cloth and precious metals. Just as we spoke of last week about the law no longer being written on stone but on flesh, so too the tabernacle is one that is no longer contained in a building of stone, but was then contained in human flesh. But before we get into that, we have a few other things to cover. So let's read this Parsha and then look at some of the specifics of this Parsha before we transition into the greater topic of the Messiah in the tabernacle. Exodus 37 and 38. And Bezalel made the ark of acacia wood, two and a half cubits long and a cubit and a half wide and a cubit and a half high. And he overlaid it with clean gold inside and outside and made a molding of gold all around it. 
and he cast four rings of gold for it, for its four feet, two rings on its one side, and two rings on its other side. And he made poles of acacia wood and overlaid them with gold. And he put the poles into the rings at the sides of the ark to lift the ark. And he made a lid of atonement of clean gold, two and a half cubits long and a cubit and a half wide. And he made two carabim of beaten gold. He made them from the two ends of the lid of atonement, one carob at one end on this side, and the other carob at the other end on that side. And he made the carabim from the lid of atonement from the two ends. And the carabim spread out their wings above, and covered the lid of atonement with their wings, with their faces toward each other. The faces of the carabim were turned towards the lid of atonement. And he made the table of acacia wood two cubits long and a cubit wide and a cubit and a half high. And he overlaid it with clean gold and made a molding of gold all around it. And he made a rim of a handbreadth all around it, and made a molding of gold for the rim all around it. And he cast four rings of gold for it, and put the rings on the four corners that were at its four legs. The rings were next to the rim, as holders for the poles to lift the table. And he made the poles of acacia wood to lift the table, and overlaid them with gold. And he made the utensils which were on the table, its dishes and its cups and its bowls and its jars for pouring, of clean gold. And he made the lampstand of clean gold, and he made the lampstand of beaten work. Its base and its shaft, its cups, its ornamental knobs, and its blossoms were from it. The six branches came out from its sides. Three branches of the lampstand out of one side, and three branches of the lampstand out the other side. There were three cups like almond flowers on one branch, with ornamental knob and blossom, and three cups like almond flowers on the other branch, a knob and a blossom. So for the six branches coming out of the lampstand. And on the lampstand were four cups like almond flowers, its knobs and blossoms and a knob under the first two branches of the same, and a knob under the second two branches of the same, and a knob under the third two branches of the same, for the six branches coming out of it. Their knobs and their branches were of it. All of it was one beaten work of clean gold. And he made it seven lamps and its snuffers and its trays of clean gold. And he made it of a talent of clean gold and all its utensils. And he made the incense altar of acacia wood, a cubit long and a cubit wide, square, and two cubits high. Its horns were of it. And he overlaid it with clean gold, its top and its sides all around, and its horns. And he made a molding for it of gold all around it. And he made two rings of gold for it, under its molding, at the two corners on both sides, as holders for the poles with which to lift it. And he made the poles of acacia wood and overlaid them with gold. And he made the holy anointing oil and the clean incense of sweet spices, according to the work of the perfumer. And he made the altar of ascending offering of acacia wood, five cubits long and five cubits wide, square and three cubits high. And he made its horns on its four corners, the horns were of it, and he overlaid it with bronze. And he made all of the utensils for the altar, the pots and the shovels and the basins and the forks and the fire holders, and he made all its utensils of bronze. And he made a grating for the altar, a bronze network under its rim, midway from the bottom. And he cast four rings for the four corners of the bronze grating as holders for the poles. And he made the poles of acacia wood and overlaid them with bronze. And he put the poles into the rings on the side of the altar, with which to lift it. And he made the altar hollow with boards. And he made the basin of bronze and its stand of bronze from the bronze mirrors of the serving women who did service at the door of the tent of appointment. And he made the courtyard. For the south side, the screens of the courtyard were fine woven linen, 100 cubits long. Their 20 columns and their 20 sockets of bronze. The hooks of their columns and their bands were of silver. And for the north side, the screens were 100 cubits long, their 20 columns and their 20 sockets of bronze. The hooks of the columns and their bands were of silver. And for the west side, there were screens of 50 cubits, their 10 columns and their 10 sockets, 
the hooks of the columns and their bands were of silver. And for the east side, eastward, 50 cubits, 15 cubits of screen on the one side, and their three columns and their three sockets, and 15 cubits of screen on the other side of the courtyard gate, on this side and that side with the three columns and their three sockets. All the screens of the courtyard all around were fine woven linen. And the sockets of the columns were of bronze, the hooks of the columns and their bands were of silver, and the overlay of the tops was of silver. And all the columns of the courtyard had bands of silver. And the covering for the gate of the courtyard was the work of an embroider of blue and purple and scarlet material. And a fine woven linen and twenty cubits long. And the height along its width was five cubits, corresponding to the screens of the courtyard. And the columns were four, and their sockets of bronze four, and their hooks were of silver, and the overlay of the tops and their bands was of silver. And all the pegs of the dwelling place and of the courtyard all around were of bronze. These were the appointments of the dwelling place. The dwelling place of the witness which was appointed by the mouth of Moses for the service of the Levites by the hands of Ithamar the son of Aaron the priest. And Bethelel the son of Uri the son of Hur of the tribe of Yehuda made all that Hashem had commanded Moshe. And with him Oholiah the son of Ahashimach of the tribe of Dan, an engraver and designer and embroider in blue and purple and scarlet material and in fine linen. All the gold prepared for the work and all the work of the holy place. And it was the gold of the wave offering came to be twenty-nine talents seven hundred and thirty shekels according to the shekel of the holy place and the silver from the ones counted of the congregation was one hundred talents and one thousand seven hundred and seventy five shekels according to the shekel of the holy place a becca half a shekel for a head according to the shekel of the holy place for every one passing over to those counted from twenty years old and above for six hundred and three thousand five hundred and fifty men and the hundred talents of silver were for casting the sockets of the holy place and the bases of the veil, one hundred sockets from the hundred talents, talent for each socket. And of the one thousand seven hundred and seventy-five shekels, he made hooks for the columns and overlaid their tops and made bands for them. And the bronze of the wave offering was seventy talents and two thousand four hundred shekels. And with it, he made the sockets for the door of the tent of appointment and the bronze altar and the bronze grating for it and all the utensils for the altar and the sockets for the courtyard all around and the bases of the courtyard gate, and all the pegs of the dwelling place, and all the pegs for the courtyard all around. So once again, we're reading text that's extremely repetitive. And once again, I want to remind everyone that when we encounter repetition, there are several things going on. First of all, the entirety of the text is part of a larger pattern, which relies heavily on repetition. And so repetition should not surprise us when we encounter it. Secondly, repetition in scripture is almost never exact. There's nearly always something that has changed from one place to the next, and these differences offer a form of commentary on what's going on in both texts. They provide the keys that unlock something more, and this week's Parsha is no different. There are several curious differences that are recounted in the story of the building of the remainder of the tabernacle, items that it should not be missed, so let's go ahead and dig in. The first difference is found in the building of the ark. Now, for the most part, there's nothing really added to this recounting of the construction. The dimensions, and the rings, and the poles, and the lid, they're all the same. There are, however, two differences that I was able to spot. One difference is the inclusion of Bezalel by name in this point. He's the only one who is named in the building of the ark. In fact, Bezalel is the only one who's named all through the remainder of the tabernacle construction. From here on through the rest of the construction of the tabernacle, it simply uses the pronoun he, referring to Bezalel. Or... Is it? Because when we get to chapter 38, verse 23, we find that Oholiab was included in this. And from the last chapter, we discovered that both Oholiab and Bezalel were to teach everyone else who had skill 
how to work. Now, I don't think that we should infer too much from this, other than that there is a literary device being used here. It's called synecdoche. Synecdoche is when an author uses a single representative specific to refer to a larger general group. And we see this all the time in the Bible. It's full of examples. For example, all hands on deck is a synecdoche. You know, the use of the word hands is to refer to the entirety of the body of the sailors on the ship. Well, the inclusion of Bezalel is simply a pointer to the fact that everyone who was recounted last week in the building of the tabernacle was present this week in the building of the tabernacle. This should also remind us that this time through, that the tabernacle is being built. It's not simply being described or planned. Now, there's one other difference that's found in the text from chapter 25, when the ark was first described by Hashem to Moses on the mountain. In chapter 25, if we count, we discover that the word keravim appears seven times in the course of the instructions for the Ark of the Covenant. However, in this chapter, when we count, we discover that the word keravim is only repeated six times. What does this signify? Well, frankly, I'm not sure. It may have something to do with the instructions from chapter 25 coming from God, signified in the seven, and that the work of man here in chapter 37 is contrasted with the six. It may be that it's a pointer to the fact that regardless of how perfect instructions of God are, that man will fall short when carrying them out. It may be something that reveals that the pattern in the heavens was a perfect pattern, but that the earthly pattern is not able to quite capture the glory that's inherent in the heavenly pattern. And perhaps it's something else, none of these, all of these, or a combination of these with others that I haven't yet arrived at. Regardless, the difference is here, and it's glaring when you first see it. The reason for why, however, is one that we can spend time meditating on for years, and some have, for that matter. After the ark comes the table of showbread. Once again, there are very few differences in the recounting of this construction. In fact, if you compare these passages, the only real difference is that in the first, the instructions are given in the form of, and you shall, and in this chapter, the construction is recounted as, and he did. But there is one slight difference. In the blueprints, the final verse in connection to the table is that the bread should be arranged on the table. That line is missing in this chapter, and we won't read of the bread being set on the table until chapter 40. The table is incomplete at this point. It exists, but it's not yet filling its purpose. This concept is one that can be applied to so many areas of life. A thing is not complete until its purpose is being fulfilled. And frankly, this is especially true in people. We can be present and even working all day long and do nothing in our lives to live up to our purpose or our potential. Until we engage in our purpose continually, we are not truly complete. This is, again, something that we could spend an entire teaching on, and I recommend that each of you spend time in meditation on this point. But for now, let's move on. The next thing in order is the seven-branched lampstand, the menorah. In the case of the menorah, there's no real difference between the blueprints of the construction. In fact, if we examine each passage against the other, there is nothing out of place. It's restated nearly exact, except for the change from you shall to and he made. Then to finish off chapter 37, the building of the altar of incense is accomplished. This particular piece of text is once again a near exact repeat of the previous command with a few exceptions. When the altar was described for the blueprints, the location of the altar was described right alongside the instructions for how it was to be made. Once again, the command is incomplete at this point. There is more that must be done, even though the altar itself exists. The second 
the instructions for the altar were in a completely different place from the instructions for the rest of the tabernacle. Previously, the altar of incense was not described until after the entire tent, courtyard, and all of the items in both, as well as the priest's garments and the ordination ceremony were covered. The thing to see here is not that the instructions for the altar of incense is different, but rather that these instructions are inserted in the course of the telling here. And if we consider it, the order as it is here makes a lot more sense than the order previously, which frankly seemed out of place. But the altar of incense is one of the pieces that was situated in the holy place, so it makes sense that this article would be described in line with the other items of the holy place. But this difference does not highlight the altar in its telling. It actually highlights how out of place the instructions for this altar of incense were previously. And as we talked before, when we spent an entire week on the altar of incense, this article, out of order in the previous section, highlights the importance of prayer and communication with God. Without communication, we're not in relationship. And that goes for any relationship. And finally, we are told that the oil and incense were made. Simple, matter of fact, just as with everything else. These items will not see use until chapter 24, and their placement in the order here reflects a human approach to telling of the construction. It makes sense to be in this place. In the previous telling, it seemed out of order, but the order here is one that would be compiled by humans, and if we reflect on what's happening here, that's exactly the point. The heavenly and godly element has been discussed in great detail, and now we're seeing the human side of the tabernacle. The construction and the orderly telling where everything is in place as it should be according to human sensibilities. The altar of sacrifice in the courtyard of chapter 38 are, once again, a near exact retelling of the previous command. There's nothing out of place between these two counts and their previous, other than the act of building, rather than the passive, and you shall. What should we be on the lookout for when this happens? We need to not let the repetition lull us to sleep. We should allow it to focus us in and to be very aware because something is coming that's different. And conspicuously situated between these two items, which were back to back in chapter 27, is the brazen labor, which was not spoken of until chapter 30 in the previous telling. Once again, the order in this telling makes more sense as the altar and the labor were both positioned within the courtyard. And so the difference here, I think, is more to highlight the command from previously to force the recognition that the previous telling was out of place. And if we read the text for the labor, we discover that it is completely different here than it was before. Nothing at all is repeated in this telling that was repeated in the last telling. In chapter 30, the instructions focused on the cleanliness of the priests, how they were required to wash, when they were required to wash, why they were required to wash, and what the consequences would be if they failed to wash. None of that's here. Instead, we are told that the labor was constructed using the hand mirrors of the women who served at the door of the tabernacle. But wait, the tabernacle was not yet in operation. Why would there be serving women at the door? Was this a position that was appointed, but the women did not yet fill their role in the tabernacle? Was the donation of the mirrors a gift of service similar to the elders' gifts of Numbers chapter 7, something given in anticipation of the greater purpose of the tabernacle? Were these women who were doing the weaving for the tabernacle and the term serving at the door of the tent, is this an idiom for any woman who served in any capacity within the tabernacle? Well, frankly, I don't know. What we do know is that the serving women no longer had mirrors. This reveals that service before Hashem is not something that's based on outward beauty. 
Proverbs 31.30 says that loveliness is deceptive and prettiness is vain, but a woman who fears Hashem is to be praised. These were women who feared Hashem. They served in His presence, and this action of giving their mirrors seems to be a recognition of this fact. Their outward appearance is not what allowed them to serve the King of Creation. In other cultures, serving a god or a king required an outward beauty. Serving the true God and King of Creation requires an inward beauty. One that's not seen with human eyes, but is seen through the actions of the person. And so after all of this is completed, after all of the articles have been built, we are told of the final part of the tabernacle. Interestingly enough, this final part of the tabernacle is the first part that would have been put in place when the tabernacle was being erected. In chapter 30, we read of how the census was to be taken, and we read of how the people were counted. Not through the counting of heads, but rather through the counting of the payment that each person gave for their atonement during the census. We'll read of the census later when we get to the book of Numbers. But here in chapter 38, we read that it was this half shekel that every person gave that was used to make the sockets that the poles and the boards rested in. And last week I spoke of how the offerings that were given for the building of the tabernacle were completely voluntary, and that was true, with this one exception. Everyone who was counted in the census was represented in the silver sockets that made up the foundation stones for the tabernacle. Everyone, whether rich or poor, skilled or amateur, able-bodied or lame, everyone in the community of Israel was represented. Now, I can hear the argument now, but only the men were counted. True, but in the ancient Near East, the men were the representatives of their houses and all who were in them. It's a form of cultural synecdoche, if you will. So regardless of whether a person wanted to give to the construction of the tabernacle, regardless of whether a person was able to give towards the construction of the tabernacle, regardless of whether a person was able to work towards the construction of the tabernacle, every person was represented in the foundation of the dwelling place of God. And this is such an important idea when it comes to community, because as communities we create a place for God with everyone who is present, regardless of each person's attitude regardless of each person's ability, regardless of who pitches in or who gives. Everyone present is part of the dwelling place of Hashem. The community is everyone. Participation is not really required. If you are in a community, you are part of the community, even if only for the moment that you are there. And every person in the body of the Messiah is necessary. If we do the math of the numbers of the shekels compared to the numbers of sockets needed, the math comes out to be near exact. In the ancient Near East, the talent was around 75 pounds. A shekel was around 0.125 pounds. So it took 6,000 contributions to make a single socket. And if there were 100 sockets to make, let's do the math, 6,000 contributions times 100 sockets, 600,000 people were required just to make the sockets not counting the hooks and the bands that were also made from the silver. And what do you know? There were 603,550 men that made up the community of Israel. This was the exact amount needed to create all of the items of silver that were used to hold the tabernacle up through sockets and to hold the tabernacle together through hooks and bands. It took everyone to keep it all together and to bring the tabernacle to life. And with that... The tabernacle is nearly complete. All that's left is to assemble and to anoint the various pieces for service. And so let's assemble the pieces now, but let's do so in a way that highlights the Messiah, his ministry, and his role for us. 
let's purposefully look to see the heavenly shadow that is present in the articles of worship. Let's begin with the process as if we are moving into the tabernacle from the world. This movement provides a picture of a very real approach to God, and Yeshua made this declaration recorded in John 10 verse 9. I am the door. Whoever enters through me, he shall be saved and shall go in and shall go out and find pasture. Yeshua is the door. He is the way into the presence of Hashem. In verse 8, just before the one I just read, we read this. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. All others who claim to be able to get you close to God, they are thieves and robbers. And what is their purpose? Well, if we continue to verse 10, the thief does not come except to steal and to slaughter and to destroy. I have come that they might possess life, that they might possess it beyond measure. Yeshua is the way to the Father. And the door is the beginning of that process. He was the blue of the divine heaven with God as his father. He was the red of mortal man with Mary as his mother. And he is the king in purple who rules and reigns. And as you pass the door, you then arrive at the altar. And when you get here, there was an expectation of sacrifice. Something was to die to bring you closer to God. And this is something that we'll see repeated throughout the book of Leviticus when we get to the different types of sacrifice. Every animal that was sacrificed had the hand of the worshiper laid on its head, and the sacrifice was then accepted on behalf of the person. It doesn't matter whether the sacrifice was an ola, otherwise known as an ascending or burnt offering, such as Leviticus chapter 1 and verse 4 we read, and he shall lay his hand on the head of the ascending offering, and it shall be accepted on his behalf to make atonement for him. Or a shlamim offering, otherwise known as a peace offering in Leviticus chapter 3. In verse 2 we read, And he shall lay his hand on the head of the offering, and slay it at the door of the tent of appointment. And the sons of Aaron, the priests, shall sprinkle the blood on the altar all around. Or it could be a chata'at offering, a sin offering. Leviticus chapter 4, verse 3. If the anointed priest sins, bringing guilt on the people, then he shall bring to Hashem for his sins which he has sinned. A young bull, a perfect one, is a sin offering. And he shall bring the bull to the door of the tent of appointment before Hashem, and shall lay his hand on the bull's head, and slay the bull before Hashem. The three major classifications of animal offerings. In each case, there was a substitution of sorts being made between the worshiper and the sacrifice. And if we keep reading in John 10, we'll see that this is what follows in verse 11. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life. For the sheep. In this one short passage of John, Yeshua makes allusion to being the door that's entered through to get to God, as well as being the substitutionary death that was laid on the altar. So if the altar represents the substitutionary sacrifice that is necessary for atonement, then the brazen labor is the article that reflects being purified before approaching the tabernacle building. And we see this clearly in Numbers 8 verse 7. And do this to them to cleanse them. Sprinkle water of sin offering on them, and they shall shave their body, and they shall wash their garments and cleanse themselves. Or Numbers 8.21, And the Levites cleansed themselves and washed their garments, and Aaron waved them, a wave offering before Hashem. And Aaron made atonement for them to cleanse them. Or Hebrews 10.22, Let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Or Titus 2.14, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed, and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, 
zealous for good deeds. That last verse from Titus encompasses all of the ideas from the outer courtyard, as does the last verse in Numbers in chapter 8, verse 21, redeemed from lawless deeds at the altar of sacrifice, purified in the brazen labor. Now it is through these items that we find our way to God, the path to approach him, through the door of Yeshua, through the sacrifice of Yeshua, purified by Yeshua. And it's only after making this approach that a person can then enter into the presence of God by passing through the doorway to the tabernacle and entering into the holy place. In this place are the three articles of furniture, the table of showbread, the menorah, and the altar of incense. And once again, we find Yeshua figured in all three of these items. The bread of the presence, Matthew 26, 26. And as they were eating, Yeshua took bread, and having blessed, broke and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Or Luke 24, 30-31, And it came to be when he sat at table with them, having taken the bread, he blessed, and having broken, it was given to them. And their eyes were opened and recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. Yeshua is the bread of life, the bread that sat in the presence of God that we as priests eat of weekly on the Sabbath. And the truth of who Messiah was, was revealed to the disciples on the Emmaus Road through the bread. From there we get to the menorah, this seven-branched lamp. We read of it in Revelation 1, 12-13. And I turned to see a voice which spoke with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, dressed in a robe down to his feet and girded about the chest with a golden band. The seven lamps of Zechariah 4, the seven lamps representing the seven spirits of Hashem. The lamps representing the spirit, and the spirit reveals the truth of Messiah. And the altar of incense in the midst. This article that generally represents the prayers of the people ascending before God. If there was one thing that defined Yeshua, it was his prayer life. We read this in John 17, 20-26. And I do not pray for these alone, but also for those believing in me through their word, so that they all might be one, as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, so that they too might be one in us, so that the world might believe that you have sent me. And the esteem which you gave me I have given them, so that they might be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they might be perfected into one, so that the world knows that you have sent me, and have loved them as you have loved me. Father, I desire that those whom you have given me might be with me where I am, so that they see my esteem which you have given me, because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, indeed the world did not know you, but I knew you, and these knew you that you sent me. And I have made your name known to them, and shall make it known, so that the love with which you loved me might be in them, and I in them. This article specifically represents intercession. And we see Yeshua interceding for his disciples and for the people in John 17. Hebrews 7.25 says, Therefore he is also able to save completely those who draw near to God through him, ever living to make intercession for them. Or Romans 8.34, Who is he who is condemning? It is the Messiah who died and furthermore is also raised up who is also at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. The holy place with all of its articles reveals the truth of who Messiah is and what his role was among mankind. 
And then finally, as we continue forward, we reach the innermost chambers, the Holy of Holies, the presence of God, the Ark of the Witness, the budding rod of Aaron, the manna from heaven, each of which bears testimony of Yeshua. So let's start with the manna. John 6, 31-40 says, Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness, as it has been written. He gave them bread out of the heavens to eat. Therefore Yeshua said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, Moses did not give you the bread out of the heavens, but my Father gives you the true bread out of the heavens. For the bread of God is he who comes down out of the heavens and gives life to the world. So they said to him, Master, give us this bread always. And Yeshua said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall not get hungry at all, and he who believes in me shall not get thirsty at all. But I said to you that you have seen me, and still you do not believe. All that the Father gives me shall come to me, and the one who comes to me I shall by no means cast out, because I have come down out of the heavens not to do my own desire, but the desire of him who sent me. This is the desire of the Father who sent me, that all that he has given me I should not lose it, but should raise it up on the last day. And this is the desire of him who sent me that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him should possess everlasting life, and I shall raise him up in the last day. Yeshua compares himself to the manna from heaven that was given to Israel in the wilderness, and from that picture he declares that he is the bread from heaven that gives everlasting life. Aaron's rod, on the other hand, it speaks of Yeshua in three ways. The first is through the office of the high priest, Hebrews 6.20, where Yeshua has entered as a forerunner for us, having become high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. The second being that when the rod budded, it was a sign of the authority that had been invested in Aaron over all other options. Matthew 28.18, and Yeshua came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. And the third being that the rod was dead when Aaron used it. It was only being in God's presence that it was brought to life so that it budded. And Yeshua was known for bringing others to life, but then Yeshua himself came back to life after being dead. Acts 1.3 To whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering, by many infallible proofs, being seen by them for forty days, speaking concerning the kingdom of God. And the final piece in the Holy of Holies is the ark itself the box which contained within itself the covenants of God. Matthew 5.17 Do not think that I came to destroy the Torah or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to complete. Yeshua came to fulfill, to complete the covenant that God had made. Then there's the lid of atonement that covered the covenant. 1 John 2.2 2, And he himself is an atoning offering for our sins, and not only for ours, but for all of the world. And in the midst of the Holy of Holies, the cloud and the presence of God himself, there is the author of life and the creator of all things. Isaiah thirty-seven sixteen, O Hashem of hosts, God of Israel, the one who dwells between the caravine, you are God, you alone of all the kingdoms of the earth, you have made the heavens and the earth. If there is one word that describes the things within the Holy of Holies, it would be life. The manna gave and sustained life for Israel while they were in the wilderness. The rod that was dead came back to life. The Torah itself gives life when properly lived and is covered by the blood of Messiah, which makes atonement for us. And the Holy of Holies is inhabited by the God of life. So if we take these three areas of the tabernacle and we broke them down to their base themes, 
The outer courtyard, it reveals the way towards God. The holy place reveals the truth of Messiah. And the Holy of Holies reveals the life found in God. The way, the truth, and the life. John 14.6, Yeshua said to them, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Yeshua is the tabernacle in the flesh. He came and he tabernacled among us. The tabernacle of the Torah ceased to be a building of cloth and wood and precious metals, and it became a dwelling place of skin and bone and flesh, the place where Hashem dwelt in our midst. John 1.14, And the Word became flesh and pitched his tent among us, and we saw his honor, honor as of only brought forth of a father, complete in favor and truth. But now we are the body of Messiah. And not a single one of us is the body of Messiah individually. The body of Messiah is a communal calling. All who are his, working together in our purpose. 1 Corinthians 12.27 says, And you, plural form of the word you, you are a body of Messiah and members individually. We are the tabernacle of God. We are the place where he dwells bodily on earth. 1 Corinthians 3.16 says, Do you not know that you, again, plural, you are a dwelling place of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? When we consider this, we communally are the body of Messiah. We communally are the dwelling place of God. We communally are the tabernacle in the flesh, that temple of flesh and bone that I spoke of last week. And this is what we are, but we're not there yet. We are not the tabernacle in its fullness. We are not the Messiah as he was and as we should be. Peter says it this way in 1 Peter 2.5. You also, as living stones, are being built up, a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifice offerings acceptable to God through Yeshua the Messiah. We are not there yet. We are being built up. Just as Israel had to come together as a community and actively work to build the tabernacle in their midst, so too must we. We have the blueprint. It's in our hands. We read it daily. It's the words of God. The word of God made flesh. But for now, to many, it's just black and white instructions on a page. But the project, the building project, it's in our hands to take that black and white, and to engage with it and with each other as we're being guided by the Spirit of God. We must work as a community to conform ourselves to this pattern, to live up to the potential that's built into us, and to work to build ourselves as a community into the temple that Paul and Peter speak of. But we can't do it alone. Just as Betolel and Aholiab were given the Spirit of God and wisdom, understanding, and knowledge in how to accomplish the blueprints of the tabernacle, so too must we allow the Holy Spirit to guide us as we are being built into a dwelling place for Him. And as we come together in community, as we each take up our own unique roles that are in His image, we take on the process of Dereshchai and we see it expand beyond ourselves into something much larger than our own individual lives. When engaged in fully, we can find ourselves as part of a larger body of life-seekers who know that life can only be found through Yeshua. Let's seek to engage. Shalom.
Thank you for tuning in to Deresh Chai. If this content has blessed you and you would like more, please consider subscribing, liking, commenting, and sharing with others. To find out more about what we do and to support this ministry, head over to SeekLifeSC.com. That's SeekLifeSC.com. We'll see you again next time as we Deresh Chai, as we seek life. Shalom.